Good morning. Uh, thank you to uh, Wes Higuchi for preaching the word and Nick uh, last minute last week. Thank you both for the faithful proclamation of the word. The title of the sermon this morning is Stand By Me. Stand By Me. Uh, I have a lot to cover this morning, so I hope you are ready. Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay. Oh, bring it, I hear. Help me, Lord. Help me. Um, February of the year 1517. Actually, we'll start with the better one. We'll go October 31st, 1517. Uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Roman Catholic Church. Kicked off the Protestant Reformation, which we have noted many times, has vast impacts on the world in which we live. That you see, even today, it explains many things as we see them in our present modern era. That was October 1517. We praise God for that work. History flows in both directions, though. God worked during the Reformation, but that same year, it was February 1517, on a different continent, Hernan Cortez made landfall and would begin in February his conquest of the Aztec Empire by the edge of the sword under the banner of the Roman Catholic Church. And he would plunge the South American continent into a dark grip of a false gospel which has yet to be broken to this day. Truly, the past impacts the present. It can have massive ripple effects over the centuries. Martin Luther King Jr., not Martin Luther the Reformer, Martin Luther King, the civil rights activist in 1963, said this, I quote, Injustice anywhere, you've heard this, is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly, close quotes from his letters from a Birmingham jail. If the worldwide pandemic of 2019-2020 taught us anything, it is that these words are true. We are caught in that inescapable network of mutuality, that a virus that began in a market in China has caused loss of jobs, many loss of jobs in our island, has resulted in loss of life and closure of businesses and many other untold pains Yes, we are in an inescapable network of mutuality. So, my hope this morning is that it may be that the reverse is also true. May a stand for justice anywhere be a threat to injustice everywhere. That is my hope. Our country. Our country has been in all kinds of upheaval. 
and the church. It is my contention and my belief that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, armed with the gospel of Christ, with hearts of compassion, with the word of God, possess everything we need to press into darkness and pain with the bright, beaming hope of the gospel that heals that balm of Gilead. That this gospel not only justifies sinners, but makes those redeemed, justified, righteous sinners, makes them, propels them to care about true and biblical justice for all. And so, let's get to it. We have worked through the entire book of Daniel. We went all the way through, and now this week we jump back into chapter 9 to pick up that pen that I left off that I didn't have time for that Sunday at the end of the sermon, and I don't know that I even have time today at the beginning of the sermon, but we will do our best. At this point in Daniel 9, you, you recall the context. Daniel is now transitioned empires. Babylon has fallen. He is in the empire of the Medes. He is reading the book of Jeremiah. He perceives the time for the prophecy is fulfilled. Seventy years are complete. And what does he do? He prays. And he has this astonishing prayer that we've already walked through. He's been in captivity his entire life. And now he prays and he begins to confess his corporate sin and their corporate repentance. And this is going to prove very instructive for us and a mighty tool to fight sin and darkness wherever it may be found. So let's pray and get into it. Father in heaven, I feel weak. I confess I am weak and insufficient to deliver a word needed to bring healing. But Father, your spirit your Holy Spirit can comfort those, those who are hurting near, and it can comfort those who are hurting far. And Father, all of us in some ways in this life have experienced some form of oppression and injustice. We know what it is to feel ill-treated because of sin. And so, Father, may we take the words of the proverb May we not look to courts for justice, but may we seek justice from your hand. Ultimately and finally, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is only from the Lord that a man gets true justice. And so help us this morning, Father. Lead us, guide us, fill us with love for you and for your word. I also lift up Pastor Jay Wright and the other elders at Lahaina Baptist, I pray that you would bless their ministry as they stand for the unborn, as they minister as lights on the west side. Lord, would you build them, strengthen them, and establish them for every good deed. And Father, may we all collectively grow greater in our faith this morning because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right. Thank you. Here's your big idea. Corporate confession of sin. Corporate confession of sin reminds us of our common struggle, our common Savior, our corporate identity, and our coming hope. Corporate confession of sin reminds us of our common struggle, our common Savior, our corporate identity, and our coming hope. 
Number one, corporate confession of sin reminds us of our common struggle. Now, before we press in into new territory, let me just give you the, the former context to set the stage for you in case you missed or I'm sure you don't memorize all of my sermons, all right? So let me give you the, the brief recap of where we ended on that part one. So first, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4 through 7. Daniel 9, 4 through 7, he says this. Here, here are the pronouns that Daniel uses in his prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here it is. Check this out. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day. And then verse 20, if you just skip your eyes down to verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Now, wait a minute. If you recall, to the best of our knowledge, Daniel was an upright man. He didn't bow the knee to to any idols. He never bowed to Nebuchadnezzar or to any of them. He, he stood fast, even willing, being willing to die, and yet here he is confessing this corporate sin, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. He's confessing past sin, that he had no personal role whatsoever in the sins of his fathers or of his ancestors that led Israel to the place they were in at that moment, yet he is confessing it as his own. Does that strike you? It should. It should strike you. See, Western ideology tends to be hyper-individualistic. Hyper-individualistic. Or we could say a hyper-individualism. Wherein we see this overemphasis of the individual and an under-emphasis on the community that shaped him. But the biblical world is very different. See, the, the scriptures hold out a more balanced view, not an opposing view. It's not that there's not a role for individual sin. In fact, we are told explicitly that children will not be punished or held guilty for the sins of their fathers. You see, they will answer for their own transgression. God is, goes at pains to tell Ezekiel, the soul that sins, he shall die. He will not punish them for sin he did not commit. And so we have these passages that you can, that's the individual side, which we're all familiar with the individual side, but there's other corporate passages like, uh, like the sin of Achan in Joshua 7, how his sin impacted the entire family, his entire family, his wife, his children, they all died for his sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, we're not going to read it, but you can write it down and check it out later. Israel, the nation, is struck with a famine for three years because of the sin of Saul against the Gibeonites. Now, wait a minute. Saul's dead by this time. David's at the helm, and Israel is suffering for famine for three years until David makes right what Saul did. There was sin unaccounted for. The corporate community suffered. We'll go on and on. I'll give you one more example, two more. 
and then flush it out uh, practically. But whenever you see, and this is kind of like the conversations between like predestination and free will or, or these types of things, or when you see like end times conversations, well, it looks like this, and, and people lump up scriptures that, that sound like they support one way or the other. When you see this happening, what that's telling you, what you should be sensing is that there's some sort of dynamic of the scriptures here that I need to be very careful that I don't swing too far one way or the other, and that I don't miss the other dynamic, because if you do, I'll fall into error. That's what happens with this here. If we swing too far to hyper-individualism, we skew the scriptures and we fall into error. If we swing too far to a hyper-corporate nature, we, we swing into error and we do things like confess sins that we did not commit and we do things like, uh, like confess our sins to plants or confess to homosexuals after a gunman murders people at a nightclub in Florida for things that we have no relation to. We end up doing... That's an error on the other side, you see. And so when you see this, that tells you, wait a minute, there is a balance to be had here. And, and all of us come to that balance on one side or the other. You hear me? Right? We're, we're all either coming to the, see this from this side or from this side, and we can tend to push away those on the other side who are calling us over. It should slow us down. We could look to the sin of Adam, the federal head of the human race, imputed to us. You weren't in the garden. You didn't eat of the tree, and yet you suffer greatly. We could look at the sin of Adam, imputed to us, and our corporate identity in Adam. Our damnation hangs on our corporate identification with the sin of Adam. And conversely, our salvation hangs on our corporate identification with the righteousness of Christ. See, this concept of corporate identity is why you feel joy when your football team wins. You might say things like, we won, even though you never stepped foot on the field. Or you might be in a really bad mood. We lost. (laughs) That's corporate identification. This is why you feel the need to apologize when your keiki do something wrong. See, we get this idea. We feel it instinctively. Now, let me give you a fuller example, both positive and negative, of how this plays out in the life of the church. And I gave this last time, so this is actually still review. When I have a personal embrace of Christ, or or somebody has a personal embrace of Christ as the treasure of their heart and their willingness to forsake all to gain Christ, right? That's when somebody gets saved. Then that's followed by what? the public act of baptism, right? And now that public declaration of faith is completed by the community eruption of joy and praise and affirmation. And we are, yeah, yes. Such that the joy of the one becomes the joy of the many. What a beautiful picture. And so it is with corporate confession, What starts as the personal embrace of sin, the forsaking of the way of life, eventually results in 
public acts of disobedience and defamation of the name of Christ. And if this sin is repented of, then these sins are turned from personally, disavowed publicly. This repentance is completed and affirmed by the communal overflow of sorrow over, hatred of, and affirmation of the pain of sin, such that the repentance and confession of the one is shared by the many, and the joy of forgiven sin again erupts and leads others to repentance as well. Praise God. Praise God. So in a very real sense, if we were to think of the final stage of church discipline, that corporate level, it's multifaceted. It's a multifaceted display. It simultaneously is calling on one hand the straying sinner to repentance, but in doing so, in calling them to repent, it's also publicly declaring that this is not the way of Christ, you see? It's publicly saying, that is not how you follow Jesus as you're calling somebody to turn. And it's a statement that needs to be made. It must be made, lest the watching world blasphemes the name of Christ and his people. So, that was part of the backdrop. That was part of the backdrop. So, as we consider the role, so now that's all review, now we're pressing forward into new territory. As we consider the role of corporate confession and repentance in the life of the church, we remember that, number one, corporate confession of sin reminds us of our common struggle with sin. Of our common struggle with sin. We have to say first that when we confess sin, what is confessing sin? First, it's saying what God says about sin. It's agreeing with God that that's wrong. Because at root of all sin, at root of all disobedience, is this disagreement with God that I know better. That I know how things go better. And so when we confess something as sin and say it as sin, we are really just agreeing with God and we, we seek to turn from it at anywhere it's found in our lives at any level. And so to this degree, we all have this common struggle with sin, don't we? Because the scriptures say, for all have sinned, except pastors. <laughs> Why <do> you laugh? <laughs> for all have sinned, except, right? No, it's everybody, without exception. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Gaia. Now, your sin may look different than my sin. But at its root, they are remarkably similar, aren't they? It's a base expression that says, I want blank. And so whether your sin looks one way and mine looks another, we are both telling God, my way is better. You see? So some may steal by shoplifting. We're gonna, now we're going to dice this out, right? You know, what are you talking about? How does it look different? Let's talk about that commandment, you shall not steal. Some may steal by shoplifting. Others may steal by tax evasion. Ouch, someone, oh, getting uncomfortable now. It's going to get worse. Others may steal by watching illegal movies or listening to music and refusing to pay for it. Others may steal by wasting time while at work. 
Others may be complicit in stealing by knowingly consuming stolen goods or participating in a market that encourages such stealing, such as the pornography industry that at first seems like purely lustful, but then when you consider how much human trafficking occurs in that field, you add another layer of complicity. There's a market for it after all. Similar root, different fruit. Or perhaps you steal a different type of currency. Perhaps you steal time. You spend so much time at work. You take the time that would be with your family and you put it to work. Or you just got to have that perfect yard. You spend so much time working on your perfect yard and your perfect house, and yet you have no time to help your brother or sister in the Lord or to do missional work for God. Then you steal time from God and from the Lord and from His purposes. Or the sluggard may steal time from their relationships simply because they like to sleep and indulge themselves in leisure rather than wake up and work. See? These are all forms of theft. These are all forms of theft, and each have a very similar root, even if the manifestation looks different. We could do this with any one of the sins, any one of the commandments. Any sin you bring up, we could do this all day long. Anybody feeling convicted already? You're like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) That's good enough. I get it. We just traced out that one. And so when you hear of maybe the corporate confession of sin and maybe we're corporately confessing theft, you shouldn't pause and say, I haven't, or you shouldn't jettison that, say, I haven't committed theft. I don't need to do that. Rather, you should stop and say humbly, where has this manifested in my life? How has it manifested in my life? Because we remember the words of Paul, no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. Corporate confession is multi-layered as our sin is multifaceted. And so you may be directly guilty of sin or transgression by virtue of direct disobedience, right? Maybe you stole, you shoplifted. I may be complicit in that I look the other way and refuse to say something lest I be made uncomfortable. I may be complicit in that I saw an opportunity to help you, that I had the ability, I had the time, I chose to do something selfish, and thus by my inaction and disobedience to God's command to bear one another's burden, I contributed in creating an environment conducive to your sin. Thus, rather than bearing your burden, I chose to indulge my pleasure. I am complicit not by sin of action, but by sin of omission. In such cases... In such cases, I'm not directly complicit, nor do I bear the guilt of the transgression transgression you committed. Rather, I fully bear the guilt for my own transgression, my own failure to love sacrificially, and then recognize how my failure contributed to your role in your struggle. Oh boy. Heavy. It's multifaceted. Sin is multifaceted. If you've ever waged war on your sin, you realize how multifaceted and sneaky it is. Corporate confession reminds us that sin is multifaceted. It reminds us that sin isn't confined to actions only. 
When we corporately confess our common struggle, we are reminded that our sin is not limited to our actions only. It points us to the Sermon on the Mount. Sin of the hands begin in the heart. Sin of the hands begin in the heart. You don't actually have to violate and murder a man in order to break the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Do you know that? All you have to do is look at your brother and harbor hatred in your heart. And Jesus says you've committed murder already. You don't have to commit adultery to be guilty of the seventh commandment. You just have to look at another person with lustful thinking in your heart and you've committed adultery already. Corporate confession reminds us that sin is more than what we do with our hands. To desire something sinful is sinful. To take steps toward, tangible steps toward a sinful action is sinful. So if we confess one day, corporately, to be an adulterous people, spiritually or physically or actually, you don't need to ask yourself, have I had an affair or have I bowed down to an idol lately? No, we, we just need to look to our hearts, to our desires, and we'll say with Paul, I am a chief sinner. I'm a chief sinner. Because we remember that sins of the heart are equally sinful as our sins of the hands. Now, you might stop here and say, wait a second. Let me pause. If this is true, I am more sinful than I ever thought possible. It feels like I'd sin all the time if this is true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you say, well, that's depressing. I don't want to hear that. Let's talk about the love of God. Let's talk about grace and forgiveness and mercy and faith. We'll get there. We'll get there. We confess it hurts to look into the dark abyss of sin and to see the ugliness of it. It hurts. This is pictured well and not in the novel, a picture of Dorian Gray as he, as this, this painting that's painted of, of Dorian, who's said to be this, this beautiful young man. This, this painting reflected all the sins he did, and he never wore it on his body or on his face. Rather, as he indulged in depravity, the painting became marred and ugly, and, and what he did is he locked it away in a room under bolt and key, and he never let anybody there, and he kept it covered lest anybody should see it in its horrors. It is ugly to look at the dark abyss of our sin. We don't like to do it. But if we don't acknowledge it and see what the scriptures say of us, we undercut a very important step. If we skip this, we do ourselves harm. See, if we skip this and we don't realize how amazing God's love really is, we miss how great his mercy truly is. We might even start to think, well, of course he loves me. After all, I'm so lovable. Wouldn't you love me? I mean, shouldn't you love me? We might start to even feel entitled to things. How could God not do? See, if we skip this step, we skip a very important part of the process. But when we see our sin, it's gravity, and when we confess it corporately, we are humbled, and we are brought and bent to the foot of the cross, and that leads us to our next step, number two. 
corporate confession of sin reminds us of our common Savior. It reminds us of our common Savior. Daniel goes on, he says this in Daniel 9, verse 18, We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And so as we see our great sin, we fling our eyes to Christ and see our great deficiency and his all-encompassing sufficiency and his supremacy. And we run to the one who is rich in mercy and says, I'll never cast you out. And so it is that though we are more sinful than perhaps we initially thought, we find he is more loving than we initially thought, and he knew all of that about us and loved us still. Praise God. Glory to his name. On the other side of the cross, see, Daniel lived before Christ. We lived after. On the other side of the cross, we see Daniel's prayer was answered. God acted, didn't he? He finished transgression. He put an end to sin. He atoned for iniquity, and he brought in everlasting righteousness. And those whom he has made righteous, that is, followers of Christ, whom he has justified by faith, seek biblical justice for all. We care about inequality. We care about the outcast, the downcast, the oppressed, the poor, and the needy. Why? Because that was us. When we see them, we remember our own estate and how the Lord mercifully sought us out, sacrificially pursued us, and we are compelled to do the same for others. See, the church cares about justice because God cares about justice. And we tend to think of justice in terms of judicial punishment of sin, right? You broke something, justice occurs. That's, that's actually not how the scriptures uh, imagine justice. That's one facet of it. That's one facet of it. The scriptures' understanding of biblical justice is full-orbed. Pastor and scholar Tim Keller put it like this. Its basic meaning across the Testaments is this, justice. Giving people what they're due, whether punishment, protection, or care. Giving people what they're due, whether punishment, protection, or care. And so as you hear this term, biblical justice or justice in our society, it's often that positive expression. What are they due? What care is to be rendered on the basis of justice? And this is not unconcerning to God. God is very concerned with justice. Paul is arguing in Romans 3 and 4 to show that God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. And his answer summed up to Timothy is that there is only one Savior who can deal with our sin problem. There's only one answer to how God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. He says it like this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we proclaim one hope, one source of true justice, and we will find Jesus Christ to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And so when we corporately confess, we also corporately confess that we have a common Savior and that those who have been justified care about justice. We can never seek justice apart from the gospel, 
or divorced from the gospel, and those who try to do so will only propagate further injustice. But those who stop only at justification by grace alone and Christ alone, if you just stop there, they truncate the biblical understanding of justice. How so? In that, they only see the penalty for sin dealt with, but not the positive bestowal of righteousness and its inevitable outworking in the people of God to care about those who experience injustice. So, this may pop up, <coughs> excuse me. This may pop up in phrases like, let's keep the main thing the main thing, let's just preach the gospel. And they don't wrestle with the implications of the gospel in the lives of God's people. It drives us to mission. It drives us to help when we see injustice. It condemns those who turn their heads to the plight of those who are suffering. See, what's happening is in, in our country and in our convention, this is, this is why Beth Moore departed from the Southern Baptist Convention within the last two weeks. This is why you're seeing some of these men, mighty men of the faith, titans of preachers, won't even share the platform with one another anymore. And the conversation that's happening is, is yes, the gospel. Nobody's wanting to abandon the gospel but they're saying, what does the gospel drive the people who embrace it to do? Does not John say, if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you shut your heart to him, how can the love of God be in you? It demands more of the people of God, not just words. And so the proclamation of the gospel must never be divorced from the practice of the gospel in the lives of the church. Number three, we'll get more on that in a minute. Corporate confession reminds us of our corporate identity and our coming hope, of our corporate identity and our coming hope. When we confess corporately, we are reminded that we are we, not I. We have a corporate identity. That goes so far. One of the lies that sin tells you is that you're alone. You're the only one who's, who must struggle like this. But when we confess our sin, we remember that we are sinners. We are redeemed sinners walking the narrow path of life together. And we confess as one body of Christ with one voice and one spirit. And we are reminded that my personal sin impacts more than just me and vice versa. And likewise, my personal holiness and joy overflows to more than just me. We are reminded that the differences that once resulted in division now become opportunities for celebration as we celebrate God's peculiar grace and changing each of us to be more like him. Galatians 3. 28. Our corporate identity, as we grasp this more, undercuts those dividing lines of racism and sexism and social economic status divisions in the body of Christ. This does not mean, this does not mean that differences don't exist or are not acknowledged. It does not mean that. It means that those things are not the basis of our unity as they once were, nor will we permit them to be the basis of our division 
as we once did. We have a corporate identity modeled and seen visibly when we assemble corporately, and though we are all diverse ethnically and social economic class and all kind of different backgrounds, when we confess our common Savior and our coming hope, we display the power of the gospel to unite very radically different things in Christ. I'll circle back to the coming hope at the end. I want to spend the remainder of our time tracing out when corporate confession is warranted and necessary, okay, so when is it warranted and necessary, and then I'm going to arc that and apply it to the current struggles in our nation regarding race and ethnicity, and then we're going to land in Hawaii with some practical considerations and moving forward, and you say, whoa, (laughs) that was the introduction. We'll move quickly. When is corporate confession warranted? It is warranted when there is a covenantal community or corporate identity. So wherever there is a covenant community or a corporate identity, this is when you might use a tool in like corporate confession. Recall Daniel's prayer. He often alluded to their status (coughs) as a covenant people. He even explicitly mentioned the Mosaic covenant explicitly by name and its curses. And so we could say where there's no covenant community, where there's no corporate solidarity, it is a mistake to practice corporate confession. If there's no community, if there's no corporate identity, it is a mistake to practice corporate confession because there's no clarity. Who's confessing sin? What sin are they confessing? And then what accompanying actions will follow for mortification of that sin? What actions will be turned from, you see? To do this, where there's no corporate identity, no corporate, confe- uh, no corporate covenant or covenant head, presents a danger of pride. Presents a great danger of pride that looks pious. How so? It's very easy to confess sins you didn't commit. Isn't it? It's much easier to confess a sin that you had no hand in. That's easy on one hand because it looks good, makes you look pious. It's easy on the other hand because you have no actions to repent of. You have no hand to cut off, no eye to pluck out. You have no sin to mortify. And so it is a sinister double gain to be had as people confess sin that is not their own. And these confessions are not what Daniel is doing, nor are they biblical. It is more akin to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would walk around and get public praise for their exerted, displayed holiness. They often confessed publicly, and they were devoid of genuine repentance, and Christ condemned them for it. This is one of the dangers of what's known as CRT, critical race theory, the extreme end of the spectrum. This is where it calls white people to repent of almost being white and can confess sins which they had no hand whatsoever in doing. This is a mistake. Why? In part, there is no corporate identity and there is no covenant head of white people. We have a federal head in Adam. We have a federal head in Christ. But no such federal headship exists for white people of varying ethnic descent. 
or of Asians or of black people for that matter. There's no covenant head. So corporate confession is warranted when there is a covenant identity. This could work for nations as well, bound together constitutionally. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, it can work when there is national sin bound together. So, for example, when the SBC in 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention, corporately uh, repented for their participation in and encouragement of the slave trade in America under the banner of Christ, were they right to do so? Absolutely. Yes. They had never done so yet. They were right to do so when they did so in 1995. They were right to reiterate the impacts of it more recently. And so where there is a corporate identity or covenant head, it would be warranted. Where it is not, you should not. There's more to be said there, but we'll move on. Corporate confession of sin is warranted when there is proximity and continuity. When there is proximity and continuity of same or similar sins in the present. Corporate sin, confession of sin is warranted when there's proximity and continuity of same or similar sins in the present. Here's the general principle as it pertains to corporate and national sins. Here's the general principle. If there's proximity in time, right, how close are we in time to this? Or how long was that era? That's another one. If there is proximity in time, then there should be a high level of awareness and alertness to the possibility and even probability of continuity of that sin. In other words, we know sin is tricky. We know it's, it's shape-shifting. It's not confined to those overt external acts. And so once we stop that, if we don't deal with the root, we miss that sneaky root like a banana tree patch, and you go to cut down the banana tree patch, and you get the, the tree at the top, you don't get the bulb at the bottom, you don't dig it out, it's going to pop up another tree somewhere else. We must deal with the root. So proximity and time, how close we are to that, should make us highly alert to the possibility, possibly probability, that there's, that sin is still present manifesting in some way, shape, or form. We should be alert to it. To its possibility. Or if time reveals some new aspect or new impact of our sin that we had previously denounced and repented of, then, then our present, again, denouncing of sin, lamenting of hurt, commitment to right wrongs done as far as we are able is appropriate. Because it's true that we don't always see the full effect of sin once we take that bite, isn't it? but sometimes it rears its head in ways we never imagined. And when it does, and we see that hurt afresh, or when somebody feels that hurt afresh, it is right and appropriate to denounce again that sin, sorrow over the pain it caused, and a commitment to righting wrongs done. This is part of the plight of our black brothers and sisters in this country. The country has apologized. The church has confessed. 
And they've heard sorrow, but there's been no strategy, no reckoning or justice. You say, what do you mean? Let me give you a few examples. The Civil War ended in 1865. You say, oh, here we go. Wait a minute. Guess what happened to the slaveholders and kidnappers and rapists in the country who fought on the losing side? Guess what happened to them? Nothing. Zero. Generations of men murdered, children taken from their parents, women raped. Guess what happened? Nothing. Actually, some, some places made statues of them and they are venerated for decades. Let's fast forward a little bit. You're like, that's so long ago. Guess what happened to those men who were murdered, black men, and raped women in the early 1900s to mid-1960s? Guess what happened to them? Often nothing. Often nothing. It's the 1960s. That is not long ago. Anybody in here born in the 1960s? Some very young ones born in the 1960s in here. Nine, seven years old. (laughs) Time travelers, welcome to 2021. (laughs) A number of you. Guess what ideology guided the education you received? So I want you to imagine the pain that reverberates across an entire peoples when they see things today that could even look similar. Maybe they're not the same, but they even look similar to their long history of injustice. Imagine the pain that reverberates. As it pertains to the racial divide in our country, we have both proximity and continuity. Proximity and time. Think about this. Only in 1965 did the Voting Rights Act get passed in which black men and women were given the full ability to vote in our country. How many years after the country was formed and the Civil War ended? Only 1965. And we all know, does sin go away with the pass of legislation? No. The idea still exists for many years. How do I know that? I grew up many years, spent many years in Savannah, Georgia. And I was told at different points in time, see, there was many black people, many white people, and then Mexicans were not, not white enough to be with the white people, not black enough to be with the black people. And so I had many times growing up, and I have been called for, for romantic interests in girls in high school that I had too much nigger in me. It's a problem for the parents. Only in 2006, we're in 2000s now, 2006 did Christian school Bob Jones University allow interracial dating and marriage and only after public outcry. Our beloved sister Eleanor, we miss you Eleanor if you're listening to this. Eleanor worked in the integration area. She was a teacher working on the front lines of integration in Atlanta. We have proximity and time. And so in humility, it is not hard to imagine the plight of our black brothers and sisters on the mainland and to hear them with compassion. Perhaps we must consider that their daily experience 
built and informed by centuries of degradation and oppression is different. Their daily experience is different than one we could imagine. Now, you say, well, do I need to repent of that? That is no sin on your part. Nor should you repent of those things that I just mentioned. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying this, though. Failure to show love, to show patience to those who are walking through it, to demonstrate humility can definitely reveal sin on our part. Most definitely. One person said it like this, long after the words of my enemies are gone, the silence of my friends will linger, close quote. See, what happened is our brothers and sisters, people of color, called out to the church who had the ability, who had the position, who had the influence to fight for us, and they were met with silence. They were met with, let's just preach the gospel keep the main thing the main thing. There was silence, and they're hurting. They're still hurting. And you say, that's the mainland. That's, that's not here. I'm going to arc it back here. It's here, too. I assure you. And what's happening on a na- national level, we could say macro level, is similar to what happens on a micro level when there's sin in a marriage. Let's just say, for instance, there's a history of abuse, right? Let's say Harry met Sally, right? When Harry met Sally, let's say Sally has a history of physical abuse from her father. She grew up with an, an abusive, physically abusive father, emotionally, verbally abusive father, and she now meets Harry. And now Harry's just your run-of-the-mill guy, and Harry struggles with anger. Now in marriage, they get married. Yes, I do. It's beautiful. Now, perhaps, let's say Harry gets frustrated, and, and he lashes out and punches a wall, slams a door, pushes and shoves her. I wish I could say this didn't happen often in our community. Now let's say, let's say they get saved. Yeah, Harry and Sally come to Jesus. Let's say they get saved. They're both trying to change, trying to become more like Jesus, trying to follow him. Their marriage is transformed. Is there not a lingering impact, though? What would repentance look like for Harry? Let's say Sally's father used to come home, and he would come home with a water bottle in his hand. On a bad day, that water bottle would be empty, and he'd be... And she knew something was about to happen. Now, let's say Harry comes home, having already shoved her, having a history of physical, emotional, verbal abuse in his past with her. Let's say he comes home one day carrying what? Water. What's going to fling in Sally's mind? That's all going to come back, isn't it? Now, was there anything? Did he do anything wrong? No. He just carried water. What's, What's her problem? Let's say she tells him, whenever you came home like that, it's, it's not anything, it's just my history, it's my past. Would not love demand Harry say, I hear that. I'm not going to do that no more. I love you. I never want to cause that emotional reaction in you. I don't even want you to think I'm going to go there again, right? Would that not be love? 
Now, let's say she tells him that. He says, okay, I'm not going to do that. And one day he comes home. He's a little angry. What does he bring? Water bottle. He might say, I didn't do anything. I just, I just I forgot. I forgot. Maybe he did. Best case scenario. Maybe he did. He forgot. Learning curves are allowed. Amen? But if he kept doing that, would that not be unloving? Or perhaps his response that first time when he came home with the water bottle is, what is your problem? Get over it. I said I was sorry. It's just a water bottle. That's not wrong. You see? We understand this. I could flesh this out with some more hard-hitting illustrations. But we understand what's happening there, don't we, when we see it played out. We know the pain of it. Perhaps some of us have been through the pain of it. What's happening on a micro level, well, when that happens on a micro level, this is a, helps us understand what's happening on a macro level in our nation. When you see a police shooting, maybe race wasn't a factor. But that's not a standalone event. When you have a history of people who have experienced injustice, lack of persecution, lack of investigation, that's not a standalone event, you see. There's all this stuff coming into it, and they're saying, there's a problem here. And then they say, black lives matter, and we respond with the tone deaf, all lives matter. It's not that it's untrue. It's true, all lives matter. It just misses the history. It misses the, the reality of ongoing sting of sin. It's no different than the husband walking in with the water. It's just a water bottle. Relax. It's a lack of love that negates the history of pain that propagates further pain, not healing. It's quiet in here. This is what's happening, the large level in our country. Due to past failures to render proper repentance and suitable, fruitful action to follow, when there are even hints of actions that look similar to things in the past, it floods them in in painful memories and realities to the forefront of our brothers and sisters. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? What about us? That's, you say that's the mainland. But it, it, it's, it's not, because it, it comes here too. What about us? Hawaii has its own experience with and claims of injustice done, doesn't it? We have brothers and sisters, members of our family, who struggle with claims of injustice similar to those you hear on the mainland. What do we do? Let's get practical. Let's hopefully get helpful and, more importantly, stay biblical. What do we do? Let me give you a few steps and close out our time. But before I do this, let me, let me just note briefly, you don't have to agree with conclusions in order to be helpful. Right? You don't have to agree with the conclusions that somebody's going to go one way or the other in order to be helpful to them, to show mercy to them. Right? You, in fact... By holding your tongue and hearing and listening to the pain and trying to just love the person instead of win an argument, 
you may do great healing and be a great light for the gospel. Let me give you a few points. They all start with L. Number one, listen. Listen, man, that's just a, that goes anytime you have a conflict with anybody at any level about anything. Just listen. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Oh, I love that voice. Good one. Listen. Hear the story. Hear the person you're speaking to. Like I said, you don't have to agree with all the conclusions in order to show compassion and to listen, to ask questions. Help me to understand. What was this like for you? How did this play out for you? Man, I'm, that's, that's rough. Thank you for sharing that with me. That helps me know better how to pray for you. Listen, number one. Number two, learn. Learn. If you don't know history or the full reality of, of a situation, commit to learn. Many of the comments that come out on social media or things like that come because we don't, we, we forget our history. We forget our past. We forget how those things arc into the present. Commit to learn. If you're going to speak into something, you should take the time to learn about that thing. For Hawaii, oh, let this be a call to one of our young people sitting here or anybody who has perhaps the effort, ability to do this. For Hawaii, what would help Hawaii and be healing in Hawaii? I would love to see a Hawaiian historian who's also a studied and committed theologian who simultaneously understands current legal precedent and law. I would love to see that. I've yet to find. I've read several histories and they all come from a place that has different, very different theological and social understandings. I found these things separate. I found a Hawaiian historian. I found committed theologians and scholars. And, and I can find those who are well-versed in legal practice and precedent. But to arc all of that together, what a powerful help for the gospel and healing that would be. May this be a call. May the Lord lead somebody here who hears this sermon to begin that multi-decade road of preparation because it would take years of study. But it would be a tremendous help. Learn. Number three, lament. Lament. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance, genuine repentance. Lament, it is good and necessary to lament sin and its impacts when we see it. Lament. If your heart is hard, ask the Lord to make it soft. Fresh out of the police department, we got a death notification of a, of a friend. I've told you this before. We got a death notification of a friend, and I looked at my wife in the kitchen doing dishes, and she was crying. I asked her foolishly, What's, what are you crying for? She said, they just, we just got found out they died. And it hit me like, oh, yeah. That's a normal response. She is not abnormal. I was abnormal. I see death all the time. I deal with that all the time. I had, I had no response 
I was no grief, and I was alarmed. And I asked the Lord, help me to weep with those who weep. He did. He did. Don't pray that prayer unless you mean it. But he will help you if you ask him. Help me to lament sin and its impacts. Four, love. This is just love. Love others. Move toward them. Hear them. All these things could be subsumed under love and engage them. And fifth, lead others to patiently do the same. Lead. Lead others to patiently. That's so important. Do the same. Let's have that iron sharpening iron dynamic in the body. Don't pull away. So often when you hear somebody say something, ooh, I don't know if I like that or I agree with that. I'm going to pull away. Or the other side, I don't know if I like that or I'm not, I'm not going to pull away. No, we need believers who are willing to talk about these hard things and to be that iron, sharpening iron. And that keeps us, that guards us from swinging one way or the other too far. You ever seen what happens when somebody goes to strike something and the other person ducks or something? What happens? They go too far and they might hit somebody standing over here. You may be that necessary corrective to help the church keep from going too far. Lean into one another and lead others to patiently do the same. I've noticed many who are having this conversation, if you listen to pastors, podcasts, things of that nature, conferences, many who are having this conversation, they aren't talking to each other. They're talking in echo chambers where they just hear their position reverberated back to them. Oh, MacArthur said this and released this letter, and, and yet he, doesn't, he hasn't had a conversation responding with these guys on the other side. They won't talk. Let's lean into one another, dialogue over these issues in truth and in love for the glory of God and the good of our community. Our corporate confession reminds us of our coming hope, and I'll close with this. It reminds us of our coming hope that a day is coming when corporate confession of sin is done away with, is no more. And it is replaced with corporate, unending, multi-ethnic praise of the Lamb where redeemed slaveholders are welcomed into the kingdom by the slaves they once oppressed, where those like Frederick Douglass greets his former master on the celestial soar with no more sin. What a beautiful picture. When racist comments that once maligned our differences are replaced with ethnic celebration of our great God and Savior who wipes away every tear that was ever shed. This is our hope. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let us pray. Father, may this be our cry. May we long for this day of our coming hope when we sing of your praise with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.